Morning everybody, Duncan Green here with the uh, weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. I'm actually on holiday, but um, holiday in lockdown is remarkably similar to um, work in lockdown. Uh, I am about to go for a fantastic country walk because it is a beautiful day. Sort of perfect blue skies, cold winter's sun. So I'm looking forward to that. But before I go, I thought I'd just do the, uh, do the roundup of the posts. So the first post of the week was links I liked and one of the themes that emerged this week was vaccines. Everything's about vaccines at the moment. Um, really interesting uh, graph from uh, The Economist on the massive range in vaccine hesitancy between countries, both between different countries and in individual countries over time, big shifts in whether people actually are positive about getting vaccinated or not. Interestingly, Indonesia, the countries they surveyed, Indonesia is the least hesitant and Poland's the most. France is also very, very hesitant on vaccines. Um, so that's going to be one to watch. But also just, you know, I really want to hear why that is. You know, what are the, you know, the people say it's because of past experiences of, of, of sort of abuse of vaccines or distrust of the state. There's you know, a huge research agenda there into why people do or don't get vaccinated. Um, but then it's not just about uh, about hesitancy, it's about patents, big rows over access to different uh, vaccines, how much different countries are paying, massive range in prices for the same vaccine, and even bigger range between the vaccines, um, big campaigns to get, um, to get cost price vaccines to poor countries, um, you know, just uh, vaccine politics is going to be huge. Second post of the week was um, was about Kate Rayworth, former colleague of mine at Oxfam, now a global superstar because of her book Donut Economics. She gave a lecture at the LSE a couple of weeks ago, which was absolutely brilliant. Um, she is an extraordinarily good performer um, on uh, uh, on Zoom or in real life. But what the thing that got me was uh, actually trying to understand her theory of change. So the post is called How Can a Book Change the World? The Theory of Action Behind Kate Rayworth and the Donuts Economics Action Lab. Because Kate has set up, a couple of years after her book was published, she set up the Action Lab to try and bring together people who come, keep coming up to her and say, OK, well, we're trying to do this. We're trying to do this in our school. We're trying to do this in our community. We're trying to do this in our uh, city council. And so she realized that there was a buzz going on and she just thought, well, how can I facilitate that? And, and, and <clears throat> out of that came an emergent theory of action. She didn't sit down and theorize it. She just thought, what's going to work? Um, and I thought it was really interesting because when I reviewed the book right at the beginning, my concern was it was yeah a lot of great ideas, but where was the theory of change? Where was, how was it actually going to engage with politics? What was the kind of politics that would mean her... Um, ideas were taken up. But she's completely flipped that. Um, and, and I think that what's interesting is that the key to the Action Lab is go where the energy is. Um, yeah, she told the world people kept coming up to her. So the energy was there. And instead of trying to create the energy through advocacy or campaigns or whatever, Kate said, okay, let's just go where the energy is, has been inspired by the book and become a catalyst for that. So they set up a website. Uh, and the website is deliberately horizontal. It's getting people to share experiences um, because, you know, Kate believes quite rightly that people are much more influenced by seeing someone in a similar role as them doing something than in having some some somebody, you know, forcing a PowerPoint on them. Um, so I, I wrote this uh, piece about her theory of change, or I prefer theory of action, but I'm never going to win that argument. Sent it to Kate. 
and she just sent back some thoughts. So I'll just finish with, the, with her thoughts. To have even half a chance of transforming the economic system, you need people focused on bringing down the old order. They occupy bridges, lock onto oil rigs, expose corruption, lobby politicians, campaign against. They are crucial. You also need people inside the old structures, e.g. inside mainstream companies or in the civil service, working to reform or transform them from the inside. These people do long, detailed, hidden work, changing contractual or regulatory clauses. And sometimes they call us in when we can be useful at critical big think moments. Most times when we're invited to present, e.g. to the Biden Treasury transition team, 10 Downing Street ministerial teams, the invitation comes from one of these intrapreneur civil servants, and we follow their lead. Along with these actors, you also need people focused on making visible the new, the possible, working with the pioneers and innovators who don't wait for permission to start doing it anyway. That's where DEAL, the Action Lab, is focusing a lot of its work. So that's fantastic three, threefold view, you know, outsider campaigners, insider reformers, and outsider demonstrators or sort of, you know, new idea uh, uh, evidence people. Now, the result of all this is, is, is partial. And this is me talking, not Kate, right? Um, you know, the, the, if you go where the energy is, well, the energy isn't uniform and there's a lot of energy, it seems, at city level. A lot of energy is northern, although there are some examples of national work and some work in low-income countries such as Bangladesh. As far as Kate's concerned, yeah, there's only seven of them. They can't do everything. That's the best use of their time is to go where the energy is. Uh, and I think I got, I've still got slightly mixed feelings. I think that's fantastic you know, in terms of a contribution it's a brilliant contribution and, and, and she's achieving extraordinary things with very, you know, with minimal resources. It doesn't solve the problem of donut politics, of what are the politics that will allow much bigger structural transformation to take place. But that's, she, she doesn't claim that, that it is. Yeah, a friend of mine, Matthew Lockwood, used to have a great podcast, a blog rather, called Political Climate, which talks specifically about um, the politics of climate change and, and climate reform which sadly he's not doing at the moment. Um, but it's that kind of space, which I think is just, uh, is, is in short supply. You know, you've got big ideas like Kate's, but but the politics, you know, the, the really thinking through the politics is still a bit weak sometimes. The other great thing about Kate is she leaves people feeling positive. And, you know, in, in an age when it's so easy to feel absolutely defeated by everything, even on Zoom, she conveys this enormous enthusiasm and positivity and people really appreciated that. Not much positivity in the next post, I'm afraid, which was a repost from the uh, LSE Action, uh, Africa Centre site. Um, an extraordinary uh, event, which was the International Criminal Court has just uh, convicted the uh, Dominic Ongwen, who was one of the senior commanders of the Lord's Resistance Army, best known for its leader, Joseph Kony, in northern Uganda. Um, a lot of researchers at the LSE in, that, in the Africa Centre have been working in northern Uganda, have been working on the LRA for years and years, uh, and have actually been quite involved in the court case. Um, uh, in particular, a woman called Holly Porter was very uh, influential in getting them to take on board uh, uh, not just war crimes, but crimes involving sexual and gender-based violence. Um, so in some ways, and I'll be writing about this in a few weeks, you know, LSE actually had a bit of influence on this case. 
But that's not what Jacqueline was writing about. So the, the author is Jacqueline Natingo, herself from northern Uganda, herself kidnapped by the LRA, but now a researcher. And she watched the judgment with six uh, uh, women who had been, in, who had been um, uh, uh, abducted by the LRA, forced into LRA marriages with commanders, including one who still considers herself the wife of Dominic Ongwin. Okay. So a little bit about that. <clears throat> so the ICC judges convicted on went on 61 counts of war crimes and crime against crimes against humanity, including crimes of sexual and gender-based violence and conscripting and using child soldiers. Um, the, what happened in, in, in the LRA was women were given to senior commanders as wives, in inverted commas, um, but basically were um, then raped and sexually enslaved. So six of these women watched the judgment with um, uh, with Jacqueline. Um, and what comes across, I thought was absolutely fascinating, was the messiness of everyday life. You know, these cases, when they end up in the ICC or they end up in the international media, are usually very cut and dried, very black and white. Ongwen is a, a, is a beast. You know, the women were victims. That wasn't the conversation in Jacqueline's, um, you know, in Jacqueline's room watching the uh, judgment on the computer. Some of the women felt a bit sympathetic for Ongwen. They'd say, well, he was trafficked too. He was possessed by, you know, um, or he was dominated by Joseph Coney. He wasn't in control of his actions. Other people said he deserves what he's getting. The, um, you know, his, his, his wife is now worried about, you know, when her children will ever see their father because he's about to be put away for a long time. Um, very different from that sanitized good and evil narrative that we usually hear. And I like that messiness and the LSE, is full of anthropologists who revel in the messiness of this kind of everyday life. But then Jacqueline at the end also had a really powerful reflection. So she said, after my visitors left, I was left to reflect on what I felt. I too was abducted by the LRA. I was taken from my school dormitory. My future, if I had survived, would have been the same as these women. I would have been raped, forced into sexual slavery and returned home with children by an LRA commander. But I was lucky. I was released when one of my teachers followed the LRA into the bush and begged for my freedom. Seeing these women's pain and suffering, their resilience and bravery and their determination to survive, care for their children and even forgive their abusers is something very moving. I'm not sure I would have been able to love a man who did such terrible things to me. So uh, quite a powerful piece. And then the fourth piece was almost an accidental, the fourth blog post of the week was almost accidental. I was doing some mugging up on the humanitarian system. I'm running this little book club within Oxfam for some senior management people who come in from outside the aid and development sector. And we're reading about different subjects and having conversations. And, and this next week's is about the humanitarian system. So I was mugging up a bit uh, on, on the humanitarian system and went back to a really nice paper by Paul Knox Clark, who's one of my go-to people on the humanitarian uh, system in, overall. Um, and it's about how change happens or doesn't in the humanitarian system. It's written in 2017, uh, and I've already blogged on the conference that led to it. But actually, what jumped out to me this time, maybe because of the work I've done in between, was a box on the link between evidence and change, or the lack of a link. And for all those people who work on research into policy, research impact, you know, a big field in, in, in academia in particular these days, this is really worth reading. I'll just read a couple of paragraphs from this. Opinion was divided, both on whether we have enough evidence to support change in critical areas, this is opinion at the conference, and on the importance of this evidence in processes of change. 
While some participants felt strongly that the lack of evidence prevents change, others were clear that we have mountains of evidence, or that with specific relation to cash transfers, we had 15 years of evidence collected. It wasn't an evidence problem why it wasn't being taken forward. So he's saying, actually, you know, having lots of evidence is at best necessary but not sufficient and sometimes just irrelevant. Look at the, you know, the last president of the United States. Evidence was had, had nothing to do with the way he made decisions. So whether or not this is the case, do we need evidence for change or can change happen without it? It's interesting to consider how evidence was used to support change because it seldom seemed to happen in a straight line with people considering evidence and then deciding to follow the evidence in their actions. Instead, participants explained how evidence was often used late in the change process to provide a sense of certainty and so emotional security around decisions that had already been made. Evidence was also used to bring people together and provide a common platform for discussion. When there are disagreements, you can have that conversation at a very different level. You have it around technical evidence and it allows you to surface what might be a tension. It's interesting to see in these cases how the value of evidence lies in its ability to address some of the social and emotional challenges to change rather than purely to address technical questions. That is amazing. The idea that evidence is like a kind of a safe space where you can get used to the idea of change, accept something changing uh, because it makes it emotionally palatable, I think is a huge insight, really interesting. It's not something that evidence producers, knowledge producers ever think about, but we really should in terms of how we use evidence to bring about change, how we present evidence, the spaces we create to discuss evidence. Really important finding, I thought. It was also interesting to see the circumstances under which evidence became important to a change process. It seems that evidence is more likely to be used where it is specifically wanted or commissioned, or where it is answering a specific question that decision makers are already asking. It, all, it is also more powerful at certain times in situations of uncertainty or doubt. People may be more likely then to turn to evidence. Evidence may also become more important in decision making where the organisational system raises its sights and focuses more on outcomes than on conducting activities according to industry tradition. And finally, and importantly, the importance of evidence in making decisions may differ from one organisation and even one individual to another. As one presenter said, I threw facts at him and I threw argument at him and he wouldn't budge. Sometimes it's only the visual, it's only the human story that's going to move people there in their heart and not up there in their head. So if you're interested in how evidence actually brings about change, do read that, that blog and read, read the report. It's really good. And on that note, have a great weekend, everybody. Enjoy the sunshine if you're in the UK or somewhere else that's sunny. Bye.